Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guest today, Fabian Kinzelman, is here and also, also Oliver Stripes. They've got their views on the weekend's biggest stories. Maybe it's the stories from the past week. We could be looking, of course, across the week ahead. But Fabian, you're around the mic. What's caught your eye? Well, I'm still wondering what the outcome of the Turkish election might not only mean for the Turkish economy, but also for the future of the NATO alliance. Then another Norwegian billionaire moved to Switzerland. Yes, another. <laughs> another one. And he moved to Andermatt. Okay. So this is like the, the latest uh, destination which is attracting um, the Norwegians here. Well, I was going to say, aside from Dufostrasse here as well, there's always, <laughs> there's always a collection of Norwegian billionaires uh, as well. Is it? It's, it's, anyway, there's some might be out front as, as we speak. Also, uh, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is going to be joining us with the views from London and we'll also be heading to the Balkans for the latest news from there. Protests persist in Belgrade, turbulence for Slovenia's proposed new airline, and a top tip for Croatia's hospitality industry. I'm Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, and I'll bring you all the latest from the region. And the editorial director of Zeit magazine, Christoph Armand, will be telling us what he's been up to this week. Also a little bit of a reinvention in terms of the pace uh, of the magazine and newspaper as well. It's the 4th of June, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very sort of, I would say somewhat sunny, uh, definitely uh, a feeling of summer compared to when I left uh, about a week ago. Uh, sunshine is out. Lake is, I think, 19 degrees this morning, uh, which is yeah, generally uh, agreeable. And uh, it's great that summer has arrived. As I said, uh, Oliver Stravis is here, professor of uh, political science uh, at the University of Zurich, also has a gig uh, down in Ticino as well. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, maybe classes are out already. Uh, you're a free man for the summer almost or not quite yet? Yeah, exactly. So in Lugano, we are done with this semester. I was wearing a taller for the first time in my life. We have graduation ceremony sitting three hours under a polyester <laughs> robe, uh, sweating like hell. This but is because it's an American school that you had to wear this? Exactly. It's not, not really a Swiss tradition no, so much. No, it's an American university, right? Yeah. And, uh, but at least I was not the only one. The foreign, Our Swiss foreign minister was also there, also sitting there for three hours in his dollar. Oh, he had to wear one as well. Yes, he had to wear one as well. And uh, But I must be honest, it looks like he enjoyed it. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what you're saying, whether he just likes to be sort of in petroleum-based fabrics or, or just likes to sort of get dressed up. I think he likes to, to get dressed up. Okay. <laughs> Fabian Kinselman <laughs> is also uh, here this morning, uh, international correspondent for the Handelszeitung uh, here in Switzerland. Good morning. I mean, you gave us the, the preview of what we're going to be talking about, but uh, maybe reflections on this sort of this very extended kind of odd spring that we had, but uh, the city seems to be alive now. The city is definitely back to life. I mean, you can tell you weren't swimming this morning. Yeah, I was. I was in the lake. Uh, I wasn't. I think I was the only one at that time, anyway. But uh, I was I, when I landed yesterday. I thought this sort of the best thing after a thirteen-hour mm -hmm. flight is just to go straight to the body. Uh, and Enzo, who is uh, the gentleman who runs the F and B at uh, at our at our local, uh, was there, and it was just this great mood. Everybody was out. Kids, kids, well, shoreside, playing ping pong in the lake. 
aperols everywhere. It was perfect. As, as long as they, you're they play not affected by allergies. No, no, no ping. Sorry, no ping pong in the lake. Ping ping pong sort of in in uh, in the back grass on the other <laughs> side. But the ping pong maybe in the lake could also be interesting. Know, sorry, so, sorry, Fabian. Sorry. <laughs> oh no worries. I just <clears throat> said uh, everyone is enjoying summer as long as they have don't have allergies. No, I mean exactly. this was a horrible week, but you've spent it in Tokyo, right? Yeah, exactly. And where there's uh, there's much news as well about how they want to also curb, uh, well, cedar forests as well because uh, there's a huge huge uh, sort of pollen issue and allergy issue as well, uh, which is another excuse, uh, I guess, for people to continue to wear masks in Japan, which is a whole other story uh, as well. Um, Also, Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, is also with us uh, in London this morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. That's that's quite good. We've done done pollen. We've done almost getting sued for claiming people dress up in strange things in their private life, but it's good. That's fine. Well, no, not even private life. I mean, it's 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 public. It's public life. It was it was in the public domain. So I, I don't think there's much thought of a lawsuit. But anyway, let's <laughs> let, let let's let's see who's listening. Andrew, how's everything in uh, on your side of the channel this morning? Yes, as, as everyone's just saying, it's, I think uh, the whole of Europe hasn't it has had this strange weather. I think uh, people in Spain and Greece and Italy in the last few weeks have been wondering what, when summer would arrive. But certainly up here, we've had these strange days where this kind of wind comes in off the North Sea in the morning and at night. So you have these very cold nights and mornings and you just don't know how to dress because you, you leave home thinking it's going to be a chilly day. And then suddenly there's a, a couple of hours of sunshine in the afternoon. But finally, finally, summer's here. And do you feel it uh, on on the tourism front already, uh, Andrew? Because it was interesting what I noticed, um, and I think we touched on this last time. You know, when I when I flew back from Tokyo um, a couple of weeks ago, there were the plane was only European passengers. Uh, there were no Japanese on the plane, and this was uh, really the first time uh, that I, f- I felt that there were both Japanese business people, but also Japanese tourists uh, coming back to Europe. Um, certainly, with the season kicking in, but do you feel it on the streets of London as well? I think what's interesting is that there's so many Americans back in town. And also, I was down in Athens last weekend for work. And there again, which we'd we'd seen when we were there a couple of years ago, they're the first movers. There's a lot of Americans flying into Athens as well, flying into Europe. So I hear a lot of US voices uh, on the street. And I see quite a lot more kind of like big groups of American tourists here. I don't think I've noticed the uptick in in, in tourism from Asia quite yet. And of course, the the numbers from, from China are still dramatically down. But again, the other the other people that seem to be back and forth are the French. Wherever I go, there seems to be lots of good French voices uh, on on the street as well. So, and where we are in the centre of London, they, they they in the past depended very heavily on, on kids coming into town when their teachers couldn't, they're going to go see the British Museum and they're going to tour around. And, and those kids seem to be back as well. So, lots of uh, uh, French and Italian uh, teachers guiding, <laughs> waddling her, uh, groups of her students through the school, through the streets. And, and Andrew, if you um, just maybe touching on another region as well, which is important, maybe it's a little bit early um, in the season as well. But are we seeing uh, the arrival of people from the Gulf uh, as well? Because, I mean, we certainly know from for, in a Swiss context, uh, you know, certainly Zurich, Geneva, uh, Lucerne uh, depend on the Bahrainis, the Qataris, the Emiratis coming. And you know, there was a bit of a dip in London, but certainly there was a, um, a, a resurgence last year. Um, and uh, and I know also they, they're oftentimes you have groups of girls from Kuwait occupying your favorite table at the Children's Firehouse. I don't know if that's happened yet or not. That's definitely happened. It was uh, actually, it's funny you say that because on Friday, a very regular, just kind of small SUV went past me and I just clocked the registration plate and it had been flown in from, from Qatar. And it's, it must be, they must be doing very cheap deals for getting your, your 
car into the belly of those planes because there's a lot of uh, Emirati and Dubai registration plates back on, on the streets here in the, in the UK. And as you know, wonderfully where we are, there's, there's a kind of a, a, there's a, I don't know how it works, but there's like certain restaurants that seem to be on, on the visiting list. And I must say that the Monocle Cafe seems to have made it on there as well. I was in there several times this week getting coffee. And again and again, just super well turned out guys would uh, turn up looking sharp always with you know the good the good shoe always immaculate so yes i think it's they're, they're back in force are you also telling me in code andrew that there's also purple lamborghinis pulled up with uh, omani plates as well <laughs> no but what, what was fascinating this week was because the, the here's a little public announcement the monocle cafe was closed for a couple of days because they were doing some uh, refurbishment putting in a, a new ice machine so if you need an, an ice latte today that's the place to head to because they were very excited about their, their new ice machine when i went in on thursday oh okay and uh, maybe we'll, we'll come back to you Andrew. you can tell us also what's uh, what's what are the, the the featured cold beverages uh, uh <laughs> as well uh, i want to just uh, maybe uh open it up to uh, some some broader maybe more serious topics um fabian uh, you you were talking about obviously we're, we're one week on obviously from uh, the election results uh, in in Turkey uh, and and as you said many question marks and of course uh, as Emma had in the, in the news headlines as well uh, you know considerable issue as well in terms of you know we feel Finland moving forward uh, in terms of its its blessing uh, somewhat blessing from Ankara uh, but a very different st- situation between Ankara and Stockholm uh, when it comes to NATO. Yeah, definitely. I mean, while um, while Turkey has given its allowance to to Finland joining NATO, it hasn't given its allowance for for Sweden yet, and uh, this is because like Erdogan still like um, criticizes Stockholm heavily for um, for how they are dealing with the PKK, and which is like his biggest topic. But also Sweden, I mean, they are also facing um, uh, they are also facing criticism from Hungary. Um, which they didn't expect. So there are like actually two players who might prevent Sweden from joining NATO. Um, and when you look at, uh, of course, what will happen, uh, whether it's going to be a situation of business as usual, but on, on the flip side, you have all eyes, of course, uh, on Ankara, but also Istanbul mm-hmm. uh, as an economic engine as well. And it's just mm-hmm. that, I mean, the, the economic story, you know, a feeling that maybe uh, things will be in, in a safer set of hands uh, in terms of a, a ministry uh, appointments. Uh, but again, also, you know, what does this, you know, fundamentally mean for for Turkey Incorporated uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So um, what Erdogan has done, um, especially within the past year, is like something which like the, the English media would call upside down economics, like, right, like the Turkish had like, I think inflation of like 80% last year, record high inflation. And of course, he didn't want that to have an impact on the election. So he brought down the inflation very, very briefly. But how he did it was not like by raising interest rates. Um, he Instead, he did like the opposite. And, um, and it's very much likely that this will like hit back at some point. But also he, he is not really fond of like raising interest rates, what he would have to do, um, because he also... Um, hind up the debt within the past years um, to finance like his very expensive politics, which gave him lots of sympathy from the Turkish people, but like might hit him long term. Oliver, how much uh, did uh, did Turkey uh, take up in terms of uh, discussion uh, amongst uh, students at both campuses uh, that uh, that you were were frequenting over the past uh, semesters? To be honest, not so much among the students, but among the colleagues, quite a lot. Um, I just, I just want to um, f- two finger on what uh, 
Fabien said um, about the interest rates. I mean, it's interesting that we already now take for granted that he basically can set the interest rates now in the first place. Oh, also that. So, yeah. I mean, um, he has control over the central bank. And while he has that, like there will be no trust of like any investor, of any other countries and central banks in the Turkish money, in the Turkish lira. Exactly. So it's a bit my expectation is maybe maybe now after the elections, um, the interest rates will will go up a bit, um, but um, he will certainly not um, loosen his grip on the central bank, which is a huge problem in itself. Mm. Also, he can't really raise up the interest rates because his debt is so high. Like this will just okay. more debt. Uh, I want to just uh, focus on another uh, upcoming election now, a uh, snap election called in Spain. Uh, again, uh, you know, su suddenly uh, we thought, okay, would this sort of drift into it later into the year? But uh, here we have going into summer and an election. Uh, and Andrew, I want to pull you in on this uh, as well, of course, as a, as a, as a semi-Spanish uh, 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 resident uh, as as well. But what, is this, it, what does this mean from a... The perspective of the Iberian Peninsula uh, right now, of course, you know Madrid, uh, you know being the engine, uh, not just again from a political perspective, but also economic engine uh, for the country as well. Uh, Oliver, maybe you want to kick it off. Actually, I'm not so sure if the it's the economic consequences that would be so huge if the government changes. Actually, uh, but I mean, it could be that uh, Vox is entering the, a new government. So Vox is a far right uh, populist party. So we would have a similar situation as in Italy now. So it changed quite a lot uh, European power relations. So the left uh, losing further. Um, and yeah, so strong polarization in Spain, almost like uh, we've seen now in the US or other countries. So it's really a new, new dynamics and uh, is a huge gamble by Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. Uh, Andrew, uh, of course, you uh, have uh, done a very good job of, of meeting uh, the locals, setting up your own network uh, in in Palma. And I'm wondering, do you, do you get a sense, though, the political discourse uh, amongst not just uh, Mallorquins, but uh, I guess that sort of notion of daily life is is there a bit of a disconnect when, uh, of course, you're you're on an island uh, which is driven, uh, of course, by tourism. Uh, also, uh, you would you would argue, you know, a sunny spot which has has really sort of you know enjoyed an incredible bounce back, not just off the back of the pandemic, uh, but is really riding something of a of a particular wave in in the Med at the moment. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because the, the what happened uh, nationally was reflected in the Balearics as well. So in Mallorca, there was a, a move to the, the centre right, the, the out with the the kind of the leftist parties. But for many people who are not uh, Spanish born or not Mallorquin, I, I think that some people. Uh, found some solace in this because there had been a growing discussion about whether there should be a ban on uh, foreigners uh, being allowed to purchase property uh, in in Mallorca. It was seemed it would be totally illegal and would be impossible to maintain because the EU would would, would come after you. But that's the kind of level of debate. Now, the, the, the move now in, in the Balearics is to a position where you have parties who are uh, not only uh, supportive of uh, foreigners buying and, and living in Mallorca, but also some who want to cut the taxation on, on the resale of properties, so making it even easier for people to borrow. So there's a real crisis in, in the Balearics because there is a distinct shortage of housing for people doing key service jobs. So that's been the the crunch point. But 
I think in in the Balearics, probably people are, are, are I don't know, on one side that they want to protect the tourism industry and that they, they, they know that so much money flows into the islands from people coming from outside. But there is this caution about what to do about housing. So, but on this vote, they, they move to the right and they, they kind of, they backed a more open, uh, welcoming policy probably for outsiders. Andrew, just uh, maybe a somewhat personal question, but uh, when you shuttle back and forth between Palma and London, how much do you sort of find yourself in that position today where you're comparing the both the political and and the economic mood because you know you step off at city airport on one side and then and then you go back to to Mallorca and then there's you know you, you collide with so many other forces and uh does that sort of require a bit of a, a of, of a mood and a, and a mindset shift uh I think it's uh, I try to be aware of that it's not as simple as it often looks when you you, you just drop in for a few days and then leave all our neighbours in the building are mostly Spanish or, or Mayokina. When you speak to them about what's happening on the island, they have some concerns, but they've been incredibly welcoming to us. So it's always been a strange place in the Balearics, even when they had the, the financial crash, even when they had a, a collapse of the housing market. They always managed to somehow continue to hold their position or grow because the islands are, are good refuges in, in moments of crisis. So the, the money coming in there is is still extraordinary. And still so many people want to go there to shift their life, to buy a farm, to set up a hotel. So you, you do have to be careful, but I, I realize that it is a little bit of a bubble even within Spain. And when we speak to our neighbors who have, you know, who work in, in, in companies in Mallorca, they all speak about how difficult it was to get onto the, the, the housing ladder and about the, the, the stresses that they face as well. But there is an extraordinary lifestyle that goes with it as well. So even they will say, Look, my parents have been here three generations. We have, we do have a, a small place in the mountains. We do have a small place at the beach. It's a, it's a contained world, and I don't know. There there are there's still very many positive things going on, but it's hard to compare the two because it is it is without a doubt a bubble in many many ways. I want to maybe swing the uh, the spotlight back to uh, the capital here, but also Switzerland in general, uh, Oliver. Of course, ongoing discussion about neutrality. Uh, I mean, a, a, a huge domestic topic, of course, also an international topic because we are talking about the very uh, notion uh, of, of non-alignment uh, in uh, in Switzerland. W- where does this move now? Because on one side, uh, of, of course, uh, there has been, uh, you, you could say that there has been a little bit of inching forward, uh, a little bit of maneuvering around uh, weapon sales uh, second and third hand removed um, and and of course this very much came to the fore uh, but where does this discussion stand now yeah so a little bit of maneuvering is, is the right uh, way to put it so I mean the, the the parliament is very divided on whether Switzerland should interpret its neutrality in this new context of the war in a different way and to allow for some some kinds of weapon uh, sales, um, and it's a very um, well. is is a very difficult moment because basically now we have a, a coalition of the far right and and the Greens, um, who for very different reasons don't want to change this this idea, uh, rather narrow idea of neutrality of Switzerland, um, understood as not taking any position on the side of one or the other. 
and uh, the, uh, like a reinterpretation of the Swiss neutrality that uh, the center and the, and the moderate left, the social democrats want, would be say, okay, neutrality should mean more that we are just on the side of international law. So this is the big debate. Um, and it's really kind of 50-50. Uh, so there is lots of dynamics and, and uh, a lot can still happen over the next months. Uh, and when we talk about what happens over the next month, does this become a, uh, in a way, just a, a new position and, and a position which is not <coughs> written into law, but one which is un understood uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, of course, yeah, Switzerland you know, will, will take sides mm -hmm. um, as opposed to having, a let's say, a stated position on the front door? Yeah, so I mean, there's an ongoing discussion, a constant discussion, especially about like the re-exports, which like Germany and I think the Netherlands and I think Spain are like begging the Swiss for to to allow the re-exports of weapons they once bought from Switzerland. And I think there is even now like a slight parliamentary ma um, majority to allow it, but there's like the the laws are like standing against it. So um, the question is like there are different ideas in the parliament and so far none of these ideas has been um, have been successful. The question is maybe if they could could change it so that not like, for example, not like the government um, every time has like to decide um, like the, the federal councillors um, that they always have to say no and like have to hint on the on the on the. Um, on the law that prevents like the re-export if they could like find a solution like to to have a new law which would like for example allow um, friendly countries like Germany like to re-export these weapons after like five years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Andrew just uh, from an you know, insider uh, out position uh, you spend enough time here obviously um, a, a Swiss observer as well Certainly, it's not a story which is uh, is resonating. Of course, it has bubbled up this whole topic. Of course, re-export of weapons um, from from countries that have bought from Switzerland um, in, in the past. But uh, your take on should Switzerland, you know, maintain this brand position? Because you know we're we're in also it becomes a bit of a cultural war discussion as well. Of of you know the same thing we see with uh, you know with, with major brands being forced to take a position on something which maybe they they don't even have a, a point of view but people say well you need to have a position because you know people expect that today and I, I'm wondering uh, yeah, Andrew Tuck's take on that I don't know it's, it's interesting when I talk to you Tyler you that there is this notion of of Switzerland being neutral but when you come down to it on many many things Switzerland has strong opinions about what should happen in the world and and it does have a clarity of voice and, and I think that voice should be used I think the the more interesting question is what the consequences are if it moves too far from that position because I think that the, the world needs even more perhaps now than ever before places where you can convene people to have conversations where they feel they're on reasonably neutral territory so it doesn't matter if there, there's a, a little bit of a tilt in one direction or the other but the 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 UN voices the, the the delegates that come to Switzerland to discuss everything from health to what's happening in the world that they need Switzerland for that as well. So that's that's the the, the risk is if the, if that position is is too dis, you know, too dramatically relinquished, then I think that the world needs to think where else it goes to convene those conversations. I don't think that's going to shift from Switzerland, but that's the benefit of Switzerland trying to keep some pretense at least of uh, of not being heavily involved in everything going on around the world. 
uh, all of you were saying that, uh, of course, the Switzerland's uh, foreign minister, Mr. Uh, Cassis, uh, was was sweating it out uh, under his gowns uh, in uh, in Lugano. But uh, but you're t- <laughs> did he give anything away in terms of this position of uh, of neutrality and a position position of neutrality which which steps outside of this conflict? But what this also means for brand Switzerland moving forward? Hopefully, this conflict is not going to be with us for uh, for forever. Um, and then what is what is the legacy position? Because obviously, Switzerland spent you know a considerable time and capital uh, to to build up this this foundation that it has recognition for, recognition for globally. Yeah, I mean, so Foreign Minister Cassis, he tried to sell basically this uh, this position of Switzerland of not having a position. But I mean, this is completely naive. You cannot have no position in, uh, in international politics. Whatever you do, you take position, of course, and Swiss neutrality is also a position. Um, so this is just a wrong... I mean, this is the way Switzerland tried to sell its neutrality to now. And this was feasible during Cold War, where you could position yourself out of two large blocks. But this is not the international context we are now. So there is not... The Swiss neutrality is becoming less and less a position. Uh, it's becoming more and more a business model of trying to be able to sell weapons um, to all states that might... Uh, might be in war but in civil wars because you can export weapons to countries in civil wars not just if two countries uh, fight with each other so no one anymore understands this position as a as a coherent political position and there is no doubt for me that um, th- this cold war context is over and switzerland has to arrive at the new interpretation of neutrality which it also did in the past this is not new um, it can be interpreted in different ways. Some laws might need to be changed, but to a large extent, it's a matter of what do we understand with neutrality? Do we mean we do business uh, with whoever, or is the position we are on the side of international law? Mm. I find it interesting that you're saying um, that you're saying it's becoming a business model because it has always been a business model. Like the Swiss position on neutrality has never been like it's now glamorized as like this this. Um, this wonderful idea of like mm. being completely neutral, but it has always been just like to take advantage. Mm. Uh, just I, go, sorry, go yes, ahead. I agree. But the reason why, why basically there was a consensus in Switzerland about this neutrality is that you could also interpret it as a more or less uh, decent uh, political position. This is the reason why even uh, center left uh, was behind this understanding of neutrality. But this is exactly what is shifting now because. Um, it's not. It's no longer a coherent position, and I think if Swiss, Switzerland remains with this interpretation of it, neutrality, it rather risks that is no longer um, uh, a meaningful international actor where negotiations can take place. Mm. I'm just. I want to pick up on the topic of uh, of, of glamorization, uh, and I want to just head to, to Jordan very quickly. Andrew uh, has the uh, has the royal wedding uh, in Amman. Is it making much news uh, in the UK? Because of course. Uh, we've had uh, William and Kate uh, out there at a complete cavalcade of, of European uh, royals uh, as well, not to mention Jill Biden. Oh, yes. Uh, anywhere Will and Kate go, then it, it generates headlines here. And uh, she wore a tiara and nod to the Queen. And we've, we've had every single detail unpacked across our pages. Okay, well, this is good. I do, uh, just wondering, also from a, a soft power perspective as well. Of course, it's it's um, it's of course Prince Hussein, um, the the junior edition of Prince uh, Hussein, uh, who's who's married uh, uh, Rajwa Al Saif, uh, Saudi family architect. Uh, this is also a bit of a maybe a, a bit of a 
Saudi soft power move uh, as well, that uh, that suddenly uh, you have someone also a working Saudi woman, of course, royal connections, uh, nevertheless, uh, also walking onto the world stage. Well, I'm sure that's, I, I, well, I hope that's not the reason he picked her. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting to see uh, a Saudi there by his side. And also, I, I must say that for, for generations, the, the Jordanian royals have always looked kind of cool and they, they, they lo- like to look royal. So there's, there's always a good dress. There's always a, a, somebody who could uh, appear, appear as a model on a runway uh, on their husband's arm. So it's, it's a bit of traditional, but it, it looked amazing. So good luck to them. Exactly. Andrew Tuck uh, back in London. I'll let you get on uh, with your Sunday. We'll stay in London, uh, though. Two minutes late for the newest headlines, but nevertheless, Emma Nelson is there. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Officials are investigating whether signal error caused a train crash that's killed at least 288 people in India. Three trains collided, including an express service in the eastern state of Odisha. The Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is meeting the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in Turkey today. Turkey is continuing to block Sweden's membership of the military alliance. The leader of Spain's opposition has been mocked for saying it doesn't matter if he can't speak English. Alberto Núñez Feijó's Partido Popular is expected to mount a strong challenge in next month's snap general election. When asked how he'd communicate with other world leaders, he said, no English, no problem, a translator will be there. And Burns Fire Brigade has mounted a full response with raised rotating platform in the centre of the city to rescue a dog from the roof of a townhouse. Tilly the Labrador had escaped through a skylight onto the top of the sloped roof building. Two firefighters were dispatched four storeys up to get her, fully equipped. They coaxed Tilly into their basket and returned gently to earth. My thanks to our editorial director, Tyler Brule, and to the Swiss Police Press Bureau for that last story. Back to you, Tyler. In Dufour Strasse 90. Emma, did you catch, did you see images yeah. of this though? Because it wasn't like, it wasn't like Tilly was on a flat roof. It was one of these sort of, you know, proper medieval tiled, uh, you know, pitch rooftops. I mean, she could have gone tumbling down quite easily. She wasn't going anywhere. But what I loved was her her posture and her look as if this was the most normal thing that you would ever do. She seemed perfectly happy on her roof. I mean, if, if you are able to look on the internet to have a look at what this, this these pictures are, I can see why you pointed me in the direction of this story because Tilly is the absolute star of the show. She's cool as a cucumber where I would imagine several thousand francs worth of operations are being carried out to, to, to sort her out. What I even love even more is the fact that the Swiss, poli- the Swiss um, fire service decided that this is a newsworthy story. It's gorgeous. She's heavenly. Absolutely. So yes, listeners, uh, if you want to get the full story, uh, I think uh, Blick, so Blick.ch uh, has uh, some of the best coverage that you can find. Also very good images, Emma, as well, of the, of the, of the uh, royal wedding uh, in Jordan as well. I want to ask you, did you have a tunnel of, uh, of, 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 of cross-sword-bearing uh, footmen at your wedding? No, but we did have a gun and we had an umpar band and a boat and a chase. So we didn't have the sort did we have swords? No, someone shot fired some shots in the morning. All right. Uh, so in we did in a polite way. We ha- and actually, the foyer the night before, uh, we got married in an oh, Austrian village. We should actually village. let our listeners. Yeah, this, this happened yeah. in Austria. Yes, this so. didn't. This didn't happen in London. <laughs> the foyer of uh, of of Marylebone, No. But when when I saw the picture of Tilly on the roof, it did remind me that the foyer in this little village where we got married, they operate as the kind of like the local odd job men and women as well. So when a street light. Um, was accidentally shot out by a huntsman uh, during some some morning um, 
sort of celebration. The Feuerwehr were dispatched with the rotating platform to fix the bulb in the in the street lamp. So it's that sort of multi-purpose thing. But no, we had we had a gun and a kidnapping and a lake. Well, this is, of course, good middle <laughs> European deployment uh, of, of tax dollars uh, as well. Uh, Emma, if we don't catch up uh, with you before the end of the show, have a very good Sunday uh, because we are going to make our way right now to Ljubljana to speak to our Guy Delaney, who is, of course, our man, our correspondent uh, in the Balkans. Good morning, Guy. Good morning, Tyler. There is uh, th- there's a number of things, as ever, uh, to, of course, uh, get through uh, in terms of what is making news in the region at the moment. Uh, we always come back to the story of, 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 the, of the airline, uh, Ljubljana being the most underutilized uh, airport uh, in, uh, of all EU capitals. Um, there's another air, air lo- or aviation story out of uh, Slovenia. So why don't we lead with that? Sure. And we've actually got the government seriously talking about setting up a new airline, Tyler. And uh, this is in the wake of the demise, let me see, about uh, three and a half years ago now, of Adria Airlines. And I know you liked their livery and found it very cheerful, cheerful and everything, seeing Adria planes on the on the tarmac at various airports. Uh, it's not been a sight we've been able to gaze on for the past few years. Uh, but the government is actually exploring options for this new national airline. And there are good reasons for them to do it, because when you look at the statistics... Um, there are indications that Slovenia is losing hundreds of millions of euros every year uh, because of the lack of a national airline. So it says the Slovenian economy has lost 250 million euros as a result of Adria's collapse. Uh, the tourism sector itself has been hit with 150 million euros in losses, uh, which bearing in mind how busy Ljubljana is already is something that uh, might come as something of a surprise to a lot of people to think there's plenty of tourists around, but they say they could do with more. So the plan is try and get a new airline up and running. They've employed consultants to look at what they could do. And uh, they've come up with this putative route map and uh, the number of planes in the fleet which they would require, which is to say three. And uh, they reckon with this they could fly to a, a number of strategic destinations, not not including Zurich, incidentally. But uh, they have <laughs> they've got lots of other places on there, includes uh, including lots of uh, destinations in former Yugoslavia. So when you when you talk about this, you know, two hundred and fifty million euros potentially in in, in lost revenue because mm. there are no direct links. How much of of this, when you look at this proposed route network, is about real economic connections and not? tourism connections of course tourism you know is of course part of the the economic story here but is this also saying that you know that there needs to be you know a direct daily to brussels that uh, and and, yeah. and and to paris and and other places uh, which are of course economically vital in terms of inward investment is that what this is about or is it also lots of bums on seats so people can come and crowd the streets and annoy you in ljubljana on the weekend huh. I, I think there's a bit of both going on. But when you're talking about Brussels, that's going to be the destination which will be best served under these plans. So they're talking about 11 weekly flights to Brussels. And then after that, they've got Frankfurt, Skopje, Pristina and Munich. So with Skopje and Pristina, obviously, that's diaspora workers you're looking at there. So people from uh, North Macedonia and Kosovo, a lot of whom are living and working in Slovenia at the moment, and they're not served by flights at all. It's extremely problematic uh, for them to go back to their home countries if they want to. Uh, So that's an obvious service that they can provide. Frankfurt and Munich, that's basically tourism network. So when I'm looking right now, for example, at flights from Ljubljana to Japan, it's problematic because we don't even have very good links to a serious hub 
airports in Europe, of which Frankfurt and Munich are two of the biggest. So that's building in these proper links for people to come in to Ljubljana, and that could be business or tourism. So actually, it does say Zurich Six Weekly, Tyler. So uh, we're oh, in there, there we as go. well. So I could, I could pop I've over, you could fly somehow. in and, and stand yeah. in for me on this program as well. It'll be a pleasure. Uh, let's uh, head uh, to uh, to Serbia. Ongoing, uh, of course, protests uh, in Belgrade, uh, Guy, uh, and maybe set, set the stage for us because, of course, there are many, many stories uh, to follow all over the world. But what has been unfolding uh, in, in Serbia um, over the past weeks? So we had the two mass shootings in Serbia at the start of May. Yesterday was actually the one-month anniversary of the first and most shocking of those mass shootings at uh, Vladislav Ribnikar School in Belgrade. And the people have been coming out on the streets of Belgrade ever since. And it started off quite spontaneously. And you had tens of thousands of people coming out, marching behind a banner, reading Serbia against violence. And it was really an outpouring of anguish. Uh, But I think that's now turning a bit to anger. And in the past few weeks, we've seen these rallies continue and have been taking on an increasingly anti-government tone and a tone of opposition towards President Aleksandr Vucic, who is the undisputed leader of the country and has been for more than a decade now. And the people have been protesting, say more or less, that they blame Mr. Vucic for a culture of violence, violence in the popular discourse, which is, and, and you know, this is correlation and causation and all of that, but they're blaming him, in essence, for creating an atmosphere in which horrendous events, like we saw last month, are able to happen. And, and just with that uh, response from from the government in terms of of, of protests uh, as well, because we saw early images, uh, you know, obviously of, of people taking to the streets, uh, guy. But you know, is it a slightly kid gloves uh, approach? Because also, it, it's interesting we think about the topic, but we also can sort of look back at uh, when we've seen images uh, in not just in, in the Serb capital, but but el- elsewhere, uh, response can often be quite heavy handed. Mm. Uh, how, how is this unfolding now? Yes, it's not been a heavy handed response at all. Um, rhetorically, it's been a little bit sharp. So for example, Mr. Vucic yesterday um, released a video message and he, uh, he, he said he thanked everyone, both those who threatened to hang me and those who sent me messages of support. Um, at the rally. So he's a little bit sharp about the people taking part. And he's been trying to portray these protests as being organised by opposition political parties who are using national tragedies as an opportunity to make political capital. Uh, and certainly there's some of that going on, to be frank. But what's been notable by its absence is any heavy-handed policing. So these protesters have been able to gather in front of the National Assembly, go on marches, block bridges and motorways into the city, and nobody's been giving them a, a tough time at all. And it does seem that the protesters have been working um, cooperatively with the police to make sure that none of that's going on. I think Mr Vucic is well aware that it wouldn't be a good look mm. for the authorities to be seen to be cracked down on these sort of protests. Guy, let's just uh, maybe jump across the border to Croatia, uh, where you've got a good story out of there, which is very much of the summer season, but it sounds to me also a story which is very reflective of our times where there is a a staffing crisis, particularly a staffing crisis in and around the service industry as well, something which is essential, of course, uh, when we think about uh, the need for Croatia to, to deliver good hospitality. And this is a cut in uh, the tax that would be applied to tips, if I understand it correctly. 
That's right. And this is the latest wheeze to try and get people to either join the hospitality industry or stay in it. And, you know, retention is definitely one of the big issues for Croatia. They're short of tens of thousands of hospitality workers as we approach the summer season. So the authorities have said, right, what are we going to do about this? We're going to say that the first 3,360 euros of tips each year will be tax-free. And if you think about, you know, even if you say that's uh, 10%, uh, then that's, you know, that would put you on a a fairly decent uh, whack of tips that you'd be getting there. And it's it's a small measure in, in some respects, but it's another one to say to people, look, you can actually earn a decent wage if you're here. You can earn decent tips and it's not going to all go into the national coffers, but they are they are desperate for people. And there's great pressure from the employers' associations uh, for the government to make it easier for foreign workers to come in and to make conditions better for local people who are working in the industry. Um, and finally, just before we go, Guy, um, uh, we've got to do a leap. Um, yeah, to, to sort of, you can say sort of standing up, uh, of course, uh, for uh, fellow Albanians, uh, making a bit of a of, of a strong statement in terms of, and I guess against the language which has been uh, used by by the British government, um, not just against, uh, of course, uh, Albanian migrants, but also you could say embedded Albanians uh, who. You know, this is not a question. It's not really up for discussion. I mean, there there is there is an Albanian crime issue in the UK, but it's um it seems to be um yeah sort of a, a bit of a, a a pivot or posture uh, moment that that Dua Lipa has has taken as well. And she's been speaking in the Sunday Times, I think, today and calling remarks by British ministers short-sighted and small-minded with regards to Albanians, whether they're immigrants, British Albanian citizens like herself. And she says there needs to be more empathy towards Albanians who arrive in Britain. And personally, I've always found it a bit odd when you've got two of the country's uh, biggest um, pop stars or entertainment figures in Dua Lipa and Rita Ora, who can both trace their roots back to Albania one way or another, that the, the, the government hasn't you know, played its hand very well here. You've got two enormously popular figures who, of course, are going to be outraged if you're describing Albanian people as criminals, which is what a lot of very clumsy government statements have done. So, for example, Suella Braverman uh, claimed there was an invasion of Britain by Albanian criminals. And that's language which has been strongly criticised by Albania's Prime Minister, Eddie Rama, as well, who called those remarks very, very disgraceful. So I think it's a bit of well-deserved pushback by Dua Lipa. But is there also a discussion that there's a bit of a bit of truth to this as well? Because if you do speak to lawmakers, uh, and it, you know, there's there's also no denying that there is a, a crime syndicate which is which is you could say 100 percent Albanian um, a, as well. So I'm wondering, is there is there sort of a side also? Yeah, Mr. Rama's government as well that understands that there there is also it's not really a, it's not a soft power issue, but there is there is an image issue um, a, as well that you can't just come out and and fight against it, but also. Uh, there has to be a bit of a recognition that also probably some things need to be done at the same time. And I think that's reflected in the cooperation that you're seeing at the same time between Albanian authorities and British authorities with, for example, these repatriation flights that have been going on. And those have been to do with people who have been convicted of criminal offences. And Albania certainly isn't proud of those people. And it's not advocating for the rights of Albanian criminals uh, to freely go to and from the United Kingdom. So on the one hand, there's been that sort of level of cooperation from 
the authorities on government and law enforcement level. But when you get it, you know, boiling down to rhetoric, which is clearly designed on the British government side of things to try and stoke up culture wars and maintain, buttress its votes in red wall seats and so forth, that's not going to go down well in Tirana. And it's not going to go down well with Dua Lipa either. Indeed not. Guy, um, please keep us posted on what happens with the development uh, of what might be the new Adria Airlines uh, flying out of uh, Ljubljana. Are they, are they putting a time, literally a timetable to this as to when they'd like to get this uh, new carrier up and running? So, Robert Golub, the Prime Minister, said, not soon. <laughs> okay, all right. So maybe we won't be booking our flights uh, for autumn. Guy Delaney, no. our correspondent in uh, Ljubljana, thanks uh, very much for that. Uh, just, uh, I want to just go back to, to Oliver and uh, to Fabian. But Oliver, just I was asking you a little bit earlier, what were the sort of the defining stories uh, it's on campus or on your campuses this year? You said Turkey, not one of them. Turkey certainly being in the professor's lounge, uh, maybe. But uh, if you sort of look back on the last year, uh, academically, uh, what was uh, really the driving conversation or conversations? Wow, tough question, Tyler. Um, I have I don't have a long memory. So, but <laughs> so but since in Lugano, I'm t- um, I'm teaching at uh, American University. Of course, uh, everyone was looking at the negotiations uh, of the debt ceiling, extension of debt ceiling. So this was a big issue. Um, yes, for our American students. I mean. Th- so it was it was really a, a real i think for the first time since a while it was a real political risk um that there would be no agreement in congress on the debt ceiling and there is some positive surprise that uh, actually a deal was uh, was agreed upon and and uh, lots of relief on that mm. i'm just also curious as well when you have uh yeah a body of american students in europe in an idyllic setting uh, of course uh, like like Ticino in and around lugano uh, is, is there sort of a side of also having those students look at the world through a slightly different lens uh, as well? Because, of course, you must rely on your traditional news sources if you're coming in from the U.S. But then, you know, of course, you're exposed to, yeah, SRF in Switzerland and you might get the NZZ or you're reading the Corriere della Sera from across the border. Is that also sort of part of the process also as as a, you're smiling there as, as a professor as well to to move out of maybe your comfortable news channels? I mean... Absolutely, but probably not as far that they start reading the NC set or the Corriere della Sera. Um, and, many, not, and, and not Fabian's handle either. I, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. <laughs> most but, of them don't speak German, right? No, most of them arrive and they might speak a second language, but then it's typically Spanish, um, Spanish or... Yes, it's typically Spanish. We have uh, quite a few students from Middle East, but... Um, very few of them speak any Italian, French or German. And it's part of their experience is actually learning those languages and being exposed to, yes, to European, to a European perspective. And you, you see that they are really doing, I mean, progress is not the right word, right? <laughs> but from a European perspective, of course, progress. No, but they, they, um, they broaden their horizon and they adopt also more European perspective. They travel a lot in Europe. They travel to Germany, the UK, a lot in Italy, Spain. So um, they really, yeah, they, they get more cosmopolitan and they have a broader horizon. So we can really see that um, during, typically they are three years with us. Mm. So during these three years, 
positive to hear on the education front. Uh, we're going to head uh, to Berlin right now. I'm very happy to say, haven't spoken to him in a while. Uh, Christoph Amann is their editorial director uh, at Zeit Magazine, of course, uh, one of the most fantastic uh, newspaper supplements uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, and of course, the, the Beilage, the accompaniment of Die Zeit. Guten Morgen, Christoph. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, so tell us, uh, I, I've got a, a special edition uh, of Zeit magazine uh, here in, in front of me. There's a, a special publication date that's gone with it. Um, and of course, this is to mark something of a significant anniversary. Well, yeah, we're celebrating 77 years of Zeit. Uh, you know, the, the, the paper was founded in 1946, just after the Second World War. And uh, we've published an extra edition that just came out yesterday on Saturday in German Newsstands and, of course, in Swiss newsstands as well. Um, so there was, and, so just uh, so I'm clear, so there was a Thursday edition as normal and a Saturday yeah, edition. Exactly. So it was uh, double work this week, um, but it was really fun. And for the magazine, we selected um, sort of a special celebrity and uh, issue um, starring Mick Jagger, a young Mick Jagger on the first cover, and that was actually one of the first cover stories that were ever published inside magazine in October 1970. And what I thought when, when, I, when I saw that old cover for the first time again, but it's quite funny that, you know, Mick Jagger will be celebrating his 80th birthday this summer and he's still dancing like he, he would in the 1970s. So I guess some ballet dancing really helps. Well, and what's amazing about it as well is just when you look back at uh, yeah this uh, this this cover. Uh, of course, the Zeit font does not change, but magazine is in this wonderful uh, <laughs> sans serif so of uh, of the seventies. And and uh, yeah, yeah. I I I just wonder from an editorial perspective and a design perspective when you go through an exercise like this, and because you know, of course, we can all sort of you know flip through archives from time to time. Uh, but oftentimes it's always, it's great to see how things settle. So. When you went through this exercise, uh, Christoph, has it, uh, you know, for you sort of sparked uh, a few innovation ideas, which is not to say that you're not innovating, of course, all the time, uh, but uh, does it sort of, you know, demand maybe uh, that the photo desk and, uh, and, and the art department might want to think about other things? Yeah, well, the great thing, if, if you look back to, to issues from the 1970s, you can really feel the free spirit of that decade. And um, so that's very inspiring to just think about you know, what can we sort of reanimate from that, you know, free spirit of that decade. So that that's probably the one thing that you can really pick up. And uh, one of my favorite stories in that issue um, of Zeit this week of the, the special anniversary issue is that um, yeah, in the 1970s, the, the publishing house at Zeit had the idea of doing a promotional campaign for the cultural pages and uh, the, the culture editors at the time said well you know we're going to come up with a crazy idea so they invited Christo the artist to come over to Hamburg and uh, he they went to the harbor of Hamburg and then um, he rented a very massive banana net uh, and put every editor who was working for the culture pages at the time into that net and lifted the net uh, and took a photo of them so he wrapped up the cultural editors uh, uh, in, in one big banana net. And it, the campaign that was published was such a big success that the uh, publisher of Zeit, Get Bucerius, uh, then decided to form an advisory board for another project for the artist, uh, which was uh, about wrapping up the Berlin Reichstag. So that was already in 1978. I, I had no clue that they started campaigning for that. And as we all know, finally in 1994, 
uh, Christo's dream uh, was realized and he wrapped up the Reichstag in Berlin. Yeah, and uh, speaking of, uh, of of uh, of big bananas, there's also there's a, well maybe big or small bananas I don't really know, but um, there's a great picture of you've got Rod Stewart uh, yeah. and uh, and Elton John side by side uh, in in bathtubs where we're assuming that they're they're nude. We can see a bit of water anyway, um, which was <laughs> yeah. a, again with the headline uh, the headline Oh mein Gott, uh, and it's yeah it's 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 fantastic, and I'm, I'm it's. I know there's something also just looking back at all this. There is there's a real sense of of of, of daring in, in some of these covers, which, you know, um, we we know that uh, you know oftentimes we feel we're in rather more chaste times today. Uh, it's mm. uh, it's 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 an incredible collection, Crystal. Thank you so much. And then, you know, I, I was I was uh, I was remembering um, uh, an interview that I had with Paul McCartney just uh, ahead of the first lockdown in 2020. Uh, when I met him in his office in London, and uh, after, at the end of the interview, he looked at his Wurlitzer uh, uh, in his office, and uh, I, I asked him about Elvis and about the records that he had in that Wurlitzer, and and he said, well, you know, we met Elvis in the 1970s in Vegas, and it was for us, for the Beatles, it was a dream come true, you know, to meet our idol, and he, at that moment, Paul McCartney really sounded like a teenager, you know, just a fanboy of, of his greatest idol. And then I said to him, well, you know, do you have any Elvis records in, in your wallet? So, and he said, of course, yeah. And then he played Hound Dog. And in front of my eyes, Paul McCartney started dancing, uh, imitating Elvis, dancing to Hound Dog. So that was probably one of my favorite moments. Uh, and, and tell me a business question for you. Uh, does this, um, this isn't sort of a a marketing or circulation experiment uh, in, in disguise, is it? Uh, or, or is, I mean, you may not reveal that uh, that we might be looking to a shift of, of Dietzeit moving from a, a Thursday to a, a Saturday release? Uh, no, I can officially deny that. Uh, but to, you know, to, to experiment with extra issues, you know, we've been doing it at the magazine for a long time and also Zeit has been publishing extra issues uh, for, for many years. And, uh, we had a very big event in Hamburg last night called the Lange Nacht der Zeit mm. um, uh, to celebrate with our readers. And so, you know, I think it was just the perfect timing to publish an extra edition uh, of the paper and of the magazine this week. Very good. Uh, Christoph, just before you go, uh, what's, what's coming up? New projects that are in the public uh, public domain. Uh, what can we look forward to? I know we, of course, heard about a, a Zeit magazine fashion edition for women specifically. We mentioned a while ago. Um, yeah. What's on the cards in 15 seconds or less? We're going to launch a new podcast company, uh, accompanying our food magazine, Zeitmagazin Wochenmarkt, very soon. Excellent. Well, a little bit of listening for summer. Christoph Amann, editorial director of Zeitmagazin, uh, with their special 77th, edition, 77th anniversary edition, uh, joining us from Berlin. Have a very good weekend. Finally, just before we go, uh, Fabian, uh, summer ahead. Uh, I'm sure we'll see you before we break. Where, where are you heading off to? Um, Berlin is the next Geek. Okay, well then you can go and, and look up uh, Mr. Amen maybe when you're there. Uh, Oliver, you, as you said, no, no campus time for you. So what's uh, what does the summer hold? Well, my my kids still go to school, so I will for a while. I will continue swimming in the Lake of Zurich. I have this. Um, I I did my first backflip when I was age 35. Okay, my goal. My goal or my my ritual is every time I go into the water, I do it with a backflip. 
Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll be standing by. Fabian, we can go and buy ringside uh, seats to see that. Oh, definitely, yes. Uh, Fab, Fabian Kinzelman uh, from Handelszeitung, uh, also Alderweiss University of Zurich, and of course, uh, campuses uh, a little bit further south as well. Also, Andrew Tuck and Emma Nelson, big thanks to all of you for joining us today. Also, our Guy Delaney in Ljubljana and Christoph Amend of Zeit Magazine up in Hamburg. Our producers today were Desiree Bendley and Emma Nelson back in London, our studio manager. Uh, of course, Desiree also here in Zurich again, and Callum McLean in London. I'm Tyler Brule. I'm going to be here next week. I'm supposed to be in Mexico City, but I'm going to be sticking around. So I will look forward to chatting and uh, speaking to all of you then. Have a good weekend. Goodbye.